So before we get started, I have a pop quiz for you this morning to see who was paying attention while I was preaching. This is for other than Glenn. Glenn, Glenn. Glenn already knows the correct answer to this. But at what point in my sermon this morning did I lose my place? Kristen, Kristen knows because she, she... It was a very long pause. Yeah, but what, what was I talking about when I lost my place? What was the topic? I wish I was. Actually, I was talking about the Lord using muddled and imperfect messages <laughs> to do his work. So, let's just say there's a sense of irony. Okay, we're in Lord's Day number three. We're going to recite this together so uh, as we get started. So if you'll turn to page uh, 873 of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, we'll recite the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day number three, together, and then we will talk about it. Did you catch that? Oh, yeah. That's good. Okay, Lord's Day number three, beginning at question number six. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Um, We've been talking about our estate of sin and misery. The natural question comes is, How did we get here, right? How did this happen that all of us, it's not just an experience of a few of us, every human being is born into an estate of sin and misery. In our own day, um, the vast majority of Westerners assume that the way the world is, is the way that it always was. Um, This is part of a very light sort of deism in our culture, or if you want to say a little bit more sophisticated, actually, Epicureanism, that has taken over our culture, where God himself isn't even necessary. So in modern Epicureanism, which is different than ancient Epicureanism, um, you can have this idea of progress, and it just happens. You'll hear people talk about this in terms of getting on the right side of history. And they're talking about the right side of history without there being any God. That's part and parcel of the culture, the, the, the world that we're swimming in in our day-to-day lives. And so many people naturally think that the way the world is, is the way that it always was, and more or less the way that it always will be, which is actually a pretty depressing thought if you think about it very much. The questions and answers for the third Lord's Day are therefore revealing dramatic and vital truths. The world was once unthinkably better than it is right now. Right? You really can't fully imagine your way back into the Garden of Eden. 
And while this isn't yet talked about in today's questions and answers, we get a pointer in that direction when it talks about being born again. The world will one day be much better, not only than we can imagine, but than what it was in the Garden of Eden. Right? Jesus doesn't simply bring us back to that garden. He brings us to a new heavens and new earth, which is so much better. Critically, we also discover that human beings carry the extraordinary dignity of having been created not only good, but in the image of the living God. We discover that sin is the cause of our present misery and guilt, and we discover that it is necessary for God to grant us new life from above, that is, to be born again, in order for us to turn from our own sin and misery, to turn from our wicked ways, and to walk in love and joy with our Lord. There's a lot in there. Um, In fact, there are so many things in there that we could joyfully spend several months talking about it, but our purpose is simply to give an overview of the systematic theology that's found in the Bible. So I'm going to try to limit this to just four big issues or four big questions. First, what does it mean for human beings to be created in the image and likeness of God? Uh, If any of you knows the complete answer, I'll give you seven minutes and you can give us that. Uh, In seven minutes. Second, how is it that Adam's sin plunged all subsequent generations into an estate of sin and misery? Uh, That is, we need to talk a bit about federal headship and the imputation of Adam's guilt and sin to his posterity. Uh, This is an important precursor to talking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They operate on the same principles. And... um, I remind you that the imputation of Christ's righteousness to your account is the sole ground upon which God has justified you and declared you to be in the right. Third, we ought to say just a bit about what it means when we talk about total depravity. He doesn't use the language total depravity here. It talks about us being totally unable, which is really the same set of issues. And fourth and finally, we ought to say just a little bit about what it means to be born again. So that's an awful lot for 35 minutes. We may not get it all, but that's okay. Let's start by taking them in order. First, what does it mean for human beings to be created in the image and the likeness of God? Uh, I should say that although um, those are just given just in a few verses in Genesis, you cannot imagine the amount of ink that has been spilt over the last 2,000 years or particularly the last 1,400 years, over what does it mean to be in the image and likeness of God. The Catechism actually gives a very practical answer. It's not a complete answer, but a very practical answer. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No. God created man good and in his own image. That is, that's the qualifier, what does it mean to be created in God's image? In true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God as creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. It's a very practical, short answer of how we were first created. Um, I don't know how many of you ever encountered this, but you might have in some philosophy or even just in that filtering down to a very popular level of people saying things, is sometimes people will say things such as, How can human beings even talk to God? I mean, the gap between God and us is so great. Can human beings have meaningful language to talk about God? 
It's actually part of the so-called God is dead movement that ran through the 50s in the Western world was basically saying God is so far above us that even if he exists, because they're holding that out as kind of being open-ended, we couldn't say anything meaningfully about him because we're little tiny creatures. It's like you know having an ant try to describe a human being. I want you to realize that this issue about us being created in God's image puts that as a lie. God's intent was always that he would be in relationship with his creatures. Rather than focusing on our smallness, how could something so small as us comprehend? Well, we don't fully comprehend God. That's the first thing you learn in systematic theology, right? Finite does not comprehend the infinite. But we can apprehend God truly, not because we are really smart, but because God, our creator, is so good and so capable, he created you so that you'd be in relationship with him. Part of how that's told to us is you're created in the image of God and his likeness. There is an analogy between God and you. And the, the catechism is saying, well, here's some of the ways that analogy works out. Man was originally created with righteousness and holiness. Is that a satisfactory full answer? If you were going to describe the image of God in terms of human beings being created with righteousness and holiness, do you think that's really a satisfactory answer? Should leave us with an obvious problem. What happens after the fall? Oh, I'm sorry, Sarah, are you going? I was saying, no, because animals could be righteous, I suppose. But we have souls. I mean, there's a spiritual component that's seen to be separate from Yeah, that, I think that's right. Now, I, I, I don't know about I would call animals righteous. Um, there's obviously an area here where we don't really know. Uh, but righteousness in the Bible does not merely mean innocent, right? So a- animals in the garden would have been innocent. But righteousness has to do with, well, first it was a gift to human beings, but then our conformity to his revealed will. And um, I don't know, maybe we'll find out that, you know, there's some really smart animals out there that, that uh, dolphins and great whale, you know, killer whales or something, in some ways do have a righteousness. I wouldn't want to assume that, though. But I think your point is well taken. We also have to talk about the fact that we're, we're created with a spirit, with a soul. But I also want to point out that if the image of God in man was simply our righteousness and holiness, we have a problem because as soon as the fall takes place, that would mean you are no longer in the image of God. And that's not what the Bible says. In fact, uh, in the Noahic Covenant, one of the reasons why God says, what well, is the reason why God says, um, there shall be capital punishment for first-degree murder. It's because human beings are created in the image of God. That is, it's an attack on me for you to kill one of my image bearers. Right? So we don't simply possess the image of God like it's been added onto us. You are in the image of God. And though that manifestation of that gets uh, distorted because of the fall, it does not get eradicated. And now in Christ, as we're told in Colossians, God is renewing the image of God in you by conforming you into the likeness of Christ, who, of course, is perfectly the image of the invisible God. I think we also might want to extend this definition just a little bit. For one thing, the Catechism rightly focuses on the way that being created in God's image enables us to have a blessed relationship with God But it also has ramifications for the rest of God's creation. Human beings, after all, are the image, the visible image, of the invisible God. 
Uh, it, when you, if you go back and look at how things worked in the ancient Near East and how idols, idols are a type of image, work, uh, this will make a lot of sense. Uh, what's going on is God creates human beings not only in his image, but functionally is his image. That we are to reflect his perfect character into the world. So human beings, apart from the fall, should have been able to fulfill this role. You want to know what God is like? Look at Adam. Look at Eve. Not perfectly. You gotta, you gotta, you know. But in terms of character, that's what it's supposed to be like. And of course, we can say this perfectly about Jesus. Today, if you want to know what God is like, you don't start with uh, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, not Thomas Aquinas. He's fine. He's a, we can talk about Aquinas some other time. Uh, you don't start with uh, Aristotle. I was thinking about an ancient Greek philosopher. Peter knows I sometimes say the wrong thing, um, as we were doing this this morning. Um, I was talking about presbytery when I met our session, um, when we were praying. Okay, um, enough of my rabbit trail. Aristotle is not the place you start when you want to know about who God is and what he is like. I'm not saying Aristotle's entirely wrong. I mean, some of the things he says actually do apply to God. But if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus and you say that is precisely what God is like because Jesus is the full revelation of God, right? In former times, God sent his word through prophets, right? He gave us his word. He gave us true knowledge of God. But in these last days, he has given us his son, the final word, right? So the image of God is intended to do that. Not just Jesus, though. All of you. God created you so that functionally, the way you behave would reveal his character into the world. And though it's marred by sin, that's still true in your life. As God is sanctifying you, you get to be light, so Jesus says, by the way, Jesus who says, I am the light of the world, says, I am sending you out, that you will be light in this world. We all recognize big gap between me and Jesus. That is part of our calling, though. Other thoughts or questions of the image of God? I mean, obviously, a great deal could be said. Sarah. So in the Apostles' Creed, it says, like, we believe the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, the Lord that That's a really intriguing question. I'm not sure how it answers. So Sarah's question is, does the Holy Spirit sustain the souls of unbelievers or act in the souls of unbelievers in a way but the Holy Spirit doesn't act in the world? What we can say, of course, is God is always upholding everything. We're told this explicitly about the Son, upholding all things by the word of his power. But, of course, that's true of all three persons of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit is, of course, always sustaining and keeping alive all unbelievers. In fact, here's a, I don't know if this is maybe a dangerously overly complicated idea to go into, but sometimes people say that human beings intrinsically are going to live forever. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Like, everybody you meet is eternal. Well, most of everyone you meet is everlasting, but they are not eternal. To be eternal would mean you would have life in yourself. And actually what you have is imputed life, not intrinsic life. 
that is, for all eternity, God will be keeping you alive as he upholds you by his own sovereign will. Right? You don't have life in yourself. And God is doing that for unbelievers every bit as much as he is for believers. I don't know that we can say more than that about the Holy Spirit working in the souls of unbelievers. So maybe Ray has an idea. Ray. Um, it's a snake to say that obviously God is sustaining everything. Mm-hmm. But he's also sustaining and preserving those who are his. Mm-hmm. In particular, right? Even because we don't know who's actually a child of his. We can't in confidence say, oh yeah, you know, it's a true believer is not true. But we continue to pray for those who are lost and God can still convert them yeah, that's, ab- that's absolutely true, of course. So Ray is saying that you know, God is going to sustain his people, his elect, in a special way. Um, you may not be able to draw the charts on paper that make this work, because in one sense, predestination and God's sovereign work are a subset of providence. God foreordains everything that comes to pass. He is always upholding every single molecule of the universe. Right? Everything happens according to his will. But the Bible does reveal that there is a special sense that God has set his love upon his chosen people. That's actually how he became his chosen people. Before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon you in Jesus Christ. And God does have a special care for you. By the way, we could say communally, too, a special care for his church. So that's that's a useful thing to keep in mind. Other thoughts on the image of God in man, John? But but God would be actively by the Spirit blinding the hearts of those who don't believe. Yeah, so John suggests that God is actively by the Holy Spirit blinding the hearts of those who don't believe. And I will say, sometimes. So the thing, remember about um, God's work in predestination, is it, is it does have equal ultimacy that it arrives at the same uh, outcome for believers and unbelievers, that God's sovereign will does get accomplished. But the way that God works in unbelievers is different than the way he works in believers. If you are a believer today, God did not simply encourage you a bit. He sovereignly came and gave you a new heart. He worked faith in you by giving you a new heart. God does not have to do that with unbelievers. All he has to do to harden them is to let them go. So that's why in the Bible, one of the great punishments is God hardens their hearts. I mean, yeah, God hardens their hearts simply by turning them over to themselves. Think about Romans 1. Uh, You have this phrase that comes up a number of times, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. Right? So God didn't make them do all these sort of idolatrous things or harden them in their idolatry in that sense. We do have some difficult uh, questions around this. For example, when you read Genesis with the story of Pharaoh, it goes back and forth between um, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. And to make it even a little trickier... The Hebrew doesn't say hardened, it says strengthened. My, my Hebrew scholar over here, you can look that out and check on it. Um, for those of you who don't know, Nathan is a, we'll say budding, budding Hebrew scholar, but he, he's, he's moving along pretty quickly. Um, the idea here actually, though, I think it's helpful to see that it means strengthened for this reason. He strengthened Pharaoh in what Pharaoh already wanted to do. So if that's what we mean by saying the Holy Spirit hardened Pharaoh's heart, I go, yes, exactly. But what he didn't do is take Pharaoh, who otherwise really wanted to follow the Lord's commands, and harden him so he couldn't. And I, I know you agree with that, John. So, Other thoughts on the image of God and man? Hope. Um, I always really struggle with, like, 
conceived, right? So um, you raise a tricky question. So the question is, Adam and Eve were created good and holy, but they had the capacity to sin. And of course, the whole issue of capacity creates a problem. Why does God create them with the capacity to sin? And hope suggests Jesus was created without that capacity. And I'm going to splice that just a little bit and say yes and no. Jesus is a united person. There's one person in Jesus Christ. And that one person is incapable of sinning. But that one person is incapable of sinning because he has two natures. And the divine nature cannot sin. Right? So, as to his human nature, I think his human nature is exactly like that of Adam. And therefore, he could feel the temptation. But because he's united to his divine nature, he could not sin. So I don't think Jesus has a dis- distinct type of human nature from Adam before the fall. Um, we're, we're getting to areas where there'll be debate, right? So you can find fine scholars who'll disagree with me. But um, maybe your husband. Uh, <laughs> yes, Ray. Uh, one of the things I guess you, you have not mentioned was the whole idea of mercy, right? God's mercy. John's comment about being blinded. You know, it's, God's showing mercy to his children that don't deserve it versus not showing mercy to those whose hearts are hard. Yeah, so we're going to avoid mercy for now. And we're going to come to it maybe toward the end here when we talk about being born again. But we're actually in the place of how do we get to being corrupt. So let's move on and talk about this with Adam because I think this is important for us to get. Um, you know, we're talking about the fact that human beings are created good, and we're created with a blessed and privileged position. The obvious question is, what happens? And so the next question asks, then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise, this fall has so, so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Uh, There's a number of important concepts and questions in this very short answer. Uh, First, the catechism is making clear that the problem is not with creation, but with humanity's rebellion against God. Our most fundamental problem, therefore, is ourselves, our, our own sin, our own sinful natures. But here's the question. Why should Adam's rebellion impact the rest of us? Or as it's often put, that's not fair, right? I mean, Adam's sin... I'm suffering in the consequences. That hardly seems fair. So you have to ask the question, what's going on? Here's the key issue. It's going to come up a lot in the Bible. Jesus, well, God the Father too, all three persons of the Godhead, when they created human beings, did not create us like marbles. Right? You know, you're just isolated. You might touch something else, but you don't actually join with them. 
We were created as human beings in relationship with one another. Um, we talk about this in terms of being the covenant of works. That is, Adam was not simply living and dying for himself. He was constituted our representative whose actions would impact everyone he represented. Uh, come back this evening. We'll get this in much more detail in Romans chapter 5. A very difficult but very important passage where I'm going to hopefully expound this in a bit more detail. Well, I know I'll expound it in more detail, hopefully with greater clarity. Uh, you, can, you can be guaranteed of the detail, so don't, don't worry about that. Um, the issue here is, is that we, we deal with this in our day-to-day lives. This is not just some weird theological concept. We understand representation. Uh, what's it, about three weeks to the election? I don't know when we have our election. We're good. Three? Month? Please get, please get it by us. I'm just, um, if you turn on television where I live anyway, you discover that the same person is either the Messiah or Satan, depending on which commercial is on. Um, it turns out they're neither. That's my theological judgment. Um, okay, but we're going to elect a bunch of representatives. We're literally erecting people who represent us who get to make decisions on behalf of all of us, even if we disagree with them, even if we didn't vote for them. And so when the United States Congress, who has the authority to raise taxes and spend money and so on, decides to borrow money or um, we now have $31 trillion in debt in America, I think that's about right, Uh, at least it's on the books, Um, you know who owes that debt? You do. I do. Everyone in America does. And you can't say, I never, I never passed that bill or whatever. Lawful representatives acting on your behalf passed those spending bills. They did it for all of us. Of course, we deal with this with parents. Parents make decisions all the time to impact their children. God has established parents as representative heads over their children. And it does turn out that, you know, if one father goes off and works hard and gets a job and saves money and models good behavior for his children and so on, it's going to impact them in a different way than another father who decides that he wants to drink and gamble away all the money. And it impacts the kids, even though the kids had no say in the matter. Um, that's the way human beings are constituted, right? Here's the key thing to keep in mind, though. Before you start saying, that's not fair, you ought to consider two things. First, the Apostle Paul, slightly different context, but pretty overlapping, will say, who are you, old man, to speak back to God? Right? I mean, what's the, the, the clay going to say to the potter? Why did you make me like this? And second, he who stands alone stands condemned. And it's very important to realize. He who stands alone stands condemned because this very principle by which Adam's guilt is reckoned to your account is the very same principle by which Christ's righteousness is reckoned to your account. And, you know, it turns out that Jesus died 2,000 years before today. You had no say in the matter, right? So please keep that in mind, that that this is actually where we're we're heading toward, is the imputation of Adam's sin, which leads to our current state of sin and misery. Be grateful that God didn't create you as marbles. doesn't make me wonder a bit, by the way, about angels. Um... I I kind of get the sense, although we're not told that much, that angels, in fact, are not created in this sort of covenant relationship with each other, and therefore there's no possibility of redemption for fallen angels. I would not press that as something, a hill I want to die on, because we're not told very much about angels, but um, God does not have to create people in 
covenant relationship with one another. He has constituted human beings in that way. Thoughts or questions on that before I try to elaborate just a tad bit more in our time? Ray. And since creation, God has given us a way of escape. Adam and Eve could have chosen not to listen to the And even today, you know, it gets back to, okay, yeah, it's not fair because I'm not the one that sinned. However, I sin every day. So it wouldn't take long for me in that position to fall. Even though God has given me ways of escape, I still commit those sins with my desire. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very... Um... Well, it's actually kind of a blasphemous idea to suggest that if I was in Adam's shoes, I would have done better than he would have, right? Because you're basically saying God chose a bad representative for you. You're putting the blame with God. Um, but you remind me of R.C. Sproul's thing about um, when people go, you know, everybody deserves a second chance or whatever. And he goes, well, no, you don't. That's not in the Bible. But when did you use yours up? Right? I mean, it's not like you just needed a second chance. Charlie. It makes me think of the verse, uh, the sins of the parents of the children. Mm. Yeah. So the sins of the parents, Charlie points out the verse, the sins of the parents are visited on the children and their children's children. Uh, this is one of those things that you've got to be careful with because it could be misused. And God tells us both sides of this. Right? So, you know, in Jeremiah, we have the opposite side where the people are going through their their lives, and they're going, yeah, you know why I'm suffering so much? Because it was my parents' fault. That's a very modern American idea. You know, everything that's wrong in my life is someone else's fault. And the biggest problem in my life, I see it when I look in the mirror in the morning, right? And, and so the Lord says to Jeremiah, you know, don't say this proverb, you know, the, the parents have uh, eaten sour grapes and their children's teeth have been set on edge, right? The, the father will die for his sins, and the children will die for their sins, right? God, God is not going to be unjust with anyone. I will say God is unfair. Praise God, God is unfair. But God is not unjust. Americans often conflate those two terms. Justice is, is about you getting what you deserve. God is not unjust to anybody. Fairness has to do with God treating everyone the same way. God does not treat everyone the same way. Because we all deserved to be under God's wrath forever. And God unfairly rescued us at the cost of his own son's life, right? So praise God that God is, not un- God is unfair to our benefit. I do want to say about this relationship that actually treaties work this way. Um, I trust I'll say something about this this evening, unless I completely lose my place, like I sometimes do. Um, but... Uh, you ought to think about covenants as treaties. That is really the best way to think about them. The thing to remember about treaties is they're made with lawful representatives on behalf of all the people. When the emperor of Japan, or their parliament in the name of the emperor, declares war on the United States, there is not war between the emperor of Japan and the president of the United States. There's war between Japan and America. That's how covenants work. That's how treaties work. What covenants are. And we ought to recognize that that's how biblical covenants all work, too. Um, unless you take the covenant, um, the Noahic covenant, which is really kind of a covenant that God's making with creation to create the platform for the rest of redemptive history, all the covenants that God makes with human beings function as, covenant, as treaties between God with a representative head that has implications for all the people in that treaty.
What else? I've got 10 minutes here. Um, let's move on and look at the last question here, and we'll talk about being born again. Unless there's, I, I should ask you if you have questions on this. Questions on federal headship. Dan. Not so much a question, but when you talk about the way we're constituted and how it's different than, say, the marbles or yeah. animals, so it does increase that more, you know, right? Oh, yeah. So Dan, Dan's point is, is this R being connected increase God's glory. Um, I can't give you this as an authoritative, thus says the Lord. But here's my explanation. Maybe this will be helpful for you, Hope. Uh, my explanation for why God creates Adam and Eve with the capacity for sin. And he foreordains sin, because he foreordains whatever comes to pass. And the answer is simply this. This is the best of all possible worlds. Now, if you've heard that before, you've probably heard it mocked. Um, Voltaire mocked that idea. Because in Voltaire's day, when Christians went around talking about this being the best of all possible worlds, they were saying this. In order for God to allow you to have freedom, which is a good thing, he has to allow you the freedom to sin. That's wrong. Nobody in hell is saying, praise God, at least he gave me the freedom to sin and rebel. Right? That's, that's not what it is. That's a man-centered view. When I say that this is the best of all possible worlds, I mean it's the best po- of all possible worlds to glorify God. And God gets more glory out of a world where there's sin in it than a world in which there's no sin. Here's how. Right? God's going to manifest attributes of his character. Um, if there was never any sin in the world, God would never have manifested his holy wrath against sin. He would never have manifested mercy and grace because... Righteous people don't need mercy and grace. So the world that we live in, with its sin and brokenness, is actually a platform for God to display his own glory in a greater way than a world in which there had never been a fall. Now that does not explain all the mysteries here, because if you try to wrap your mind around, okay, so how psychologically, how does a creature who has the capacity of sin but no innate sinful desires choose to rebel against God. I have no idea. I've listened to lots of people try to explain that. I have no... Do you, Silas? Yeah. Silas says he has no idea either. Or at least he doesn't want to show me up here. But I, I've listened to very, very smart people take shots at this. And um, so, so look, there's lots of things in life I can't explain, right? But what we can take is what God has revealed to us, which is he has created us in his image. He has created Adam as our covenant head who represented us. It explains why we, where we are now, but it also explains how the second Adam can reckon his righteousness to us and more than reverse the curse, but actually bring us to where Adam would have been if he had been sustained in perfect righteousness. Okay. So here's the question. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And don't look at the answer. Well, you already know the answer. But people in the Middle Ages that were Christians, and many of our neighboring Christians today, answer that question by saying, not really. No. I mean, I still have my freedom. I can do things. I could sure use God's help. That's the can of grace thing, right? You know, God's grace actually might even be necessary in some way. But I won't acknowledge that I am unable to think or to do good apart from God giving me a new heart. 
In fact, one of the things you're going to hear people say quite regularly is, well, yeah, you know, she did X, Y, and Z, but, you know, she has a good heart. She meant well, right? He meant well. I'm going to come to you in just a second, Jen. I want to say one more thing. I, I, I want to say that if you don't like the way I'm behaving, please stop there. If you dig down into my heart, it actually gets worse, and that's even as someone who's been born again and given a new heart. Jen. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I was reading a linear ministry survey that came out the last couple of weeks. Sixty-five percent of all evangelicals believe man is more yeah, so Jen's, Jen's pointing out that the Ligonier survey of, what they call this, the survey of religion or the state of religion? Yeah. Um, that 65% of people who identify as evangelicals, please note my qualification, who identify as evangelicals say that human beings are basically innocent. Um, one of the things to realize, of course, is the term evangelical almost means nothing anymore. I, I tend not to use the term myself. I mean, in a classical sense, by all means, we are evangelicals. We are people that value the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ. The problem is, is the term evangelical has become a political term. And, of course, I'm an evangelical. I voted for Trump or whatever, I mean, whatever people are actually thinking. Um, but theologically, it also shows that God's people are perishing for a lack of knowledge. Not because the word of God is not available but it's often not being preached and taught, right? Sarah. Can you talk about the word good a little bit? Because we do acknowledge that obviously we have unbelieving neighbors who do feel lower case. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So Sarah's asking me to parse out the word good. Here's how you want to parse it out. I'm going to call it good works. Right? We need to apply to good thoughts, too. Good works. In order for a work to be good before God, it must be according to his word, and done out of right motives. We have neighbors who do what we call civil good, and we say, praise God. Your, your non-Christian neighbor might be a much nicer neighbor than some other Christians that you happen to know, right? And wonderful, nice people, good bosses. Uh, actually, one of the nicest bosses I've ever had in my whole life was a hardcore atheist. I don't really figure out how he squared it all in his own thinking, but that was fine. He was a great boss. And so we could talk about civil good, but to be good according to God, you not only need to do what is kind to your neighbor, you need to be doing it out of good motives, which means you're doing it in faith with a desire to glorify God. And so if I do that thing which is good for you out of a desire to puff myself up so that people can go, hey, he's a good guy, I'm sinning. God is blessing you with it, but I am sinning. And that's what we mean by, by good. You've got to separate those things out. Right? So, uh, and you can put it in other fields. I mean, our non-Christians develop technologies that are useful and help people and so on. There's all kinds of things that are good in that lowercase g sense. Uh, so the, the issue, though, is uh, total depravity. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, what's the difference between total depravity and utter depravity? Anyone? Jen. Utter means through and through everything is great. That's correct. So uh, I, I was a little nervous there because your first, your first one could have gone both directions. So total depravity means every aspect of your humanity has been corrupted by sin. It does not mean you're as bad as you could be. That would be utter depravity. Right? Even Adolf Hitler was not utterly depraved. Um, 
uh, that he's usually the guy that gets at the top of the scale when you look for people to ask for, uh, for horrible human beings. Um, total poverty, though, means every aspect of us. Here's why that's important. It means not simply that I have some aspects of me that are corrupted by sin, but I still have a good heart, or I still have this uh, total freedom of, li- of will that I can choose the good apart from God's grace. Right? That doesn't exist. And the Catechism is saying, unless we are born again, what does the term born again mean? Born again. Yeah, I, I understand that, but right. Born of the Spirit. Actually, in John chapter 3, well, the first thing we should say in terms of a necessity of this is Jesus in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus, who's a very prestigious rabbi in his day, the teacher in Israel, he says, you know what, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Right? So the, the absolute necessity of being born again comes right off the lips of our Savior. But there's actually a bit of a misunderstanding here, I think, sometimes when we use the term, because Jesus is really saying, unless you're born from above, right? you've received this natural fallen life that you inherited from Adam. You need new life that comes from God from above. And part of the problem here is, is translation. Uh, the Greek word anothen, which means from above, can also be translated again. And Nicodemus misunderstands what Jesus is saying and says, well, how do I be born again a second time? And Jesus actually goes on and explains, well, you know, that's being born of the earth. The whole point is you need to be born a second time from above, from God, from the Holy Spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart that is tender toward God, you cannot believe. Most evangelicals of either stripe, I'm sure in that 65%, all of them, believe that you are born again by believing. I believe, therefore I'm born again. What Jesus is saying is, if you believe, that means you've already been born again. You've already had this new heart. Otherwise, you couldn't even see the kingdom of God, let alone embrace it. Right? And that's what the catechism is getting at. Uh, We have uh, one minute. So ask the hardest question you possibly can, and I'll throw it over to Ray. I hope I didn't discourage you. Anything? One way I saw this talk that I just thought was interesting was uh, the beginning of the first question that we covered today is structured as no love and abide with God, essentially. And that's representative of Christ's threefold office. And that our office as the prophet, priest, and king, living our lives for him, is broken uh, in the fall. So we, we can't, uh, without Yeah, so that John's point is, is that if you think about the, the, the role that Christ has, but also a role we're supposed to have as his people, as prophet, priests, and kings, you cannot do that without being born again. Um, I, I would just remind you that this issue about us being created in the image of God is complicated, because that's entirely true, and yet every one of your neighbors who is not yet a believer is still in the image of God. And that impacts the way we're supposed to treat them. We can never look at someone and say, Osama bin Laden is just dirt. Because God says he's created my image. 
that can actually be really challenging in real life. I remember uh, back pretty close after 9-11, I was teaching a Sunday school class at um, Amoskeg Presbyterian Church. I was talking about our desire to see, like, vengeance and how that can be bad. And I, I used the illustration, you know, if Osama bin Laden came out of a cave and announced on television that he was sorry and he'd discovered Jesus Christ and he'd given his life to Christ, a lot of Christians would actually be disappointed. Because we wanted to see him judged. And we have to check our hearts on that one. Uh, we should close here, and then we can talk a little bit more afterwards, if any of you would like. Ray, would you pray?